Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 63. So, we start today's newscast. The nation is in full-blown Ebola panic. Um, I would advise you all to not panic, but... Instead, uh, take a look at, you know, um, the, the general state of healthcare and see what that says about um, the levels of preparedness that we have for um, a disease threat such as Ebola. And while there is no real reason for the general public to panic, there is a reason for you to be concerned about healthcare workers. Um, John Nichols had a piece in The Nation talking about what the uh, National Nurses uh, United Union has been uh, saying about uh, you know, concerns that nurses across the country have about whether or not their um, facilities are up to speed in terms of being optimally prepared to deal with something like this. And he writes, the best way to determine if our hospitals are ready to respond is by asking a nurse, and our hospitals are not up to speed. So according to a survey, um, 76% of the nurses surveyed say they're hospital has not communicated to them any policy regarding potential admissions of patients infected by Ebola. 85% said that their hospital had not provided education on Ebola with the ability for nurses to interact and ask questions. Close to 40% said their hospital didn't have plans to equip isolation rooms with the necessary uh, covered mattresses and pillows and to discard all linens after use, that kind of stuff. Basic housekeeping issues that keep everyone safe and, and also um, help protect the public at large. So um, that was a survey that was issued last week. Things um, are, of course, always changing, and we just got word of a new case that was diagnosed in Texas. But the bottom line is we should all be vigilant, but we should be thinking more broadly about what it says about our healthcare system when the basic levels of protection that healthcare workers need to protect themselves from threats um, like this uh, are, are, you know, are failing. So um, the National Nurses Union has actually issued a plan calling on all U.S. hospitals to implement a full emergency preparedness plan for Ebola and similar disease outbreaks that includes full training of hospital personnel, adequate supplies of hazmat suits, properly equipped isolation rooms, etc. Um, and on the travel front, I know everyone is freaking out at airports. And, you know, by the way, most of those airport screenings are largely useless in terms of actually uh, containing the spread of the disease. But another interesting uh, political uh, eruption that's, that's come out of the um, Ebola scare is uh, that airport workers, um, who are typically low-wage contract workers working without a union at area airports in New York City, went on strike last week uh, for a short time at LaGuardia Airport to raise awareness of the fact that they are regularly coming into contact with health hazards such as bodily fluids, vomit, uh, blood, feces, etc. when they clean airplane cabins and when they uh, deal with sick passengers. And those kinds of uh, disease hazards are not being dealt with properly or being trained for on a year-round basis. So um, those are just things to keep in mind. I mean, these frontline workers are really the ones who help keep the rest of the public calm and secure, and we should all be paying more attention to them. And, of course, be paying lots of attention to what's going on in Africa because the West African countries that have been hit the hardest are where health resources really need to be concentrated. 
We talk a lot about attacks on teachers' unions here at Belabored, mostly because, well, there are a lot of them, and uh, many of them are, in fact, politically motivated. Last week, I wrote about two of them. First, in Philadelphia, after about two years of contract negotiation, the appointed school reform commission, the slightly Orwellian-named replacement for a real school board that is appointed by the Pennsylvania governor with some help from the Philadelphia mayor, invalidated the teachers' union's contract with the Philadelphia school district. Ostensibly, this is to ensure that the teachers pay into their health benefits to save money, but as Katie Sipp of the Pennsylvania Working Families Party pointed out to me, the governor has done absolutely nothing to find more money for Philly schools and has in fact slashed their budget. Um, For more on this endless debacle that has been the Philly School District, we will have links at the Descent website, and you can listen to Belabored way back in episode 20 with Daniel Denver, where we talked the whole episode about the Philly School District and the mess that it is. Also this week, I spoke with Gus Morales, who is a teacher in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and president of his local union in Holyoke, Massachusetts, who says that he was fired for standing up to his administration over data walls, a practice where teachers were asked to post their students' names and test scores on the wall of the classroom. This is ostensibly a motivational tool, because nothing motivates young children like public humiliation. When Morales and other teachers joined parents in protesting this practice, his evaluation suddenly dropped and he was let go this summer just before he'd reach the three-year mark at the school, which would give him professional teacher status, the Massachusetts equivalent of teacher tenure. Uh, Labor sociologist Dan Clausen calls Morales the poster child for tenure, somebody who spoke out against a practice that he thought was harmful to his students and was fired for it. Um, But there is hope the Massachusetts Department of Labor Relations also thinks that it is quite likely that Gus Morales was fired for protected concerted activity in speaking out against things that he found abusive in the workplace. And he will have a hearing sometime in November or December, and we will bring you the news as soon as we know the results. Once again, that proves why tenure protections are indeed really important and not obsolete. Yes, due process. (laughs) It's a good thing, people. Over in Washington, D.C., the Supreme Court heard oral arguments last week in the Integrity Staffing Solutions versus Busk case. And uh, despite the name Integrity Staffing, it's really about uh, Amazon warehouse workers and the conditions they have to labor under. Um, In the suit, two workers argued that they should be paid for time spent undergoing daily security checks, which are designed to ensure that employees do not leave work with stolen goods. Sometimes this can take as many as uh, 25 minutes after work, um, and it's quite a burden of time when you add it up over the course of a year, and workers have to do this day in and day out um, in order to supposedly prove their innocence, that they weren't up to any sort of misconduct as they're on their way out of the uh, warehouse. And, you know, while this is considered part of the company's inventory control operations, Integrity Staffing, which, by the way, you know, notice here that it is a contractor with Amazon, it is not Amazon itself, but it is the third-party contractor that Amazon outsources its warehouse house duties out to. Um, If they're so concerned about inventory control, then why shouldn't they consider the participation of the workers in that inventory control activity to be real work? So they came up with an argument, an elaborate argument, saying that this is actually not um, falling under the Fair Labor Standards Act because it counts as post-liminary duties. Uh, So it is therefore non-compensable to the job. That is, it is extraneous to the actual essential duties of work and therefore 
therefore these workers do not deserve to be compensated for the time they spend standing on that rather tedious security line to get through a metal detector that, by the way, should be, you know, staffed in a way that allows people to get through more efficiently. But alas, I digress. The point here is that the workers were saying, this is part of our workday, whether you like it or not, whether it's meant to be or not, whether it's essential to the warehouse duties or not. And also, frankly, inventory control is part of Amazon's quality control. It is part of the brand. Therefore, um, you know, they deserve to be compensated. And uh, as Catherine Ruckelshaus of the National Employment Law Project told me, taken to its logical extreme, something like this means that, um, you know, you can require a warehouse employee at Amazon to mow the lawn after work or during lunchtime or require a nurse to clean up hospital bathrooms after a shift is over. So if that sounds like the kind of ideal work day that you want to work in, then you know, you're on Amazon's side with this, but otherwise you should take a closer look at the kinds of uh, labor practices that go into your uh, online delivered goods. Speaking of labor practices that are probably screwing you over, a few months ago I reported on the organizing of the Committee for Better Banks, which is a labor community partnership that is bringing bank workers together to fight both lousy labor conditions and bad bank practices. This past week I spoke to another bank worker, Tony, who is part of a group of Bank of America customer service call center workers who are organizing to demand better training. Um, He says many workers have been fired for mistakes that they're making that they were never trained not to do, And, he said, most interestingly, perhaps, when they are not trained properly, the mistakes that they make tend to favor the bank. For example, when the workers weren't trained how to do balance transfers by phone properly, they were not notifying customers that there would be a fee assessed for doing the balance transfer. Tony also compared their situation to workers in Bank of America's mortgage division, who became whistleblowers, telling the government about the improper practices that led to bad mortgages being sold. Uh, Tony himself speaks of being pressured to sell more credit cards to people in bad financial situations and suggests that's the kind of thinking that sunk the economy. Frontline workers like him deal directly with the customers, and he said they feel a bond with them. He doesn't want to, quote, deepen the relationship with customers by selling them things they don't need, which is how Bank of America phrases it, deepening the relationship. He thinks that his relationship with them is best served by doing right by them, unlike, we suspect, some of the executives at the top. The ones who, you know, ultimately weren't held responsible for widespread shady dealings that indeed did sink the economy. Uh, Yes, I think the nation could do well with a less deep relationship with our banking sector. I certainly could. Speaking of workers who often have a very deep relationship with their employers... This Thursday and Friday, the Barnard Center for Research on Women is having a conference titled Justice in the Home, Domestic Work, Past, Present, and Future. On the occasion of people gathering to discuss domestic work and domestic worker organizing, we thought we'd have our own discussion on the subject on this week's podcast. To that end, we're joined by Allison Julian, a New York-based domestic worker who has been part of the fight for legal recognition of domestic worker rights for years now and who will be speaking at the conference. All right. So um, we thought we'd start out by just asking you to tell us about your job. Uh, Well, um, I'm a nanny. I've been a nanny for over 20 years, and it's my passion to take care of kids. I've been taking care of many kids in the New York City, Westchester, Jersey area uh, for over 20 years. And my job goes from everything to tending to babies to tending to preteens. And it's everything in between, giving them baths, bottles, taking them to school, to activities, doctor's appointments, 
just caring for the kids in my charge. So how did you get involved with domestic worker organizing and um, the domestic workers movement? Uh, it was back in 1992 I heard about uh, domestic worker organizing and I immediately jumped on board because I was one of the nannies who would oftentimes sit in the library or sit in playgroups or sit in the park and just have these conversations with other domestic workers about the conditions within my job and the conditions within our jobs. And upon hearing about domestic worker organizing, I immediately jumped on board um, because I knew that this was something that I would have wanted to be a part of. And I knew that my voice was bigger than that of the park bench. And I was totally new to the world of organizing. But upon hearing about organizing, I immediately started talking to other workers as well and also learning that I wasn't the only one who was experiencing difficult situations on the job, but there were other workers as well. And together we were moving those conversations off of the park bench and into an organizing space where our voices could be heard in a bigger format. And this was with Domestic Workers United in Mark? Uh, yes, I started out with Domestic Workers United uh, back in 1992. Then you were probably part of the fight for the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights here in New York. And um, we'd love to hear more about that experience. Do you have any memorable stories from that time? Oh, there were tons of memorable stories. So I was a part of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights campaign here in New York for the six and a half years that it took us to lobby legislators in Albany um, to talk to them and really to educate them about who we were as domestic workers, who we are as domestic workers, and the importance that we bring not individually but collectively, not only to the employers that we work for, but to the city of New York and to this world's economy. Uh, because with domestic work, we make all of the work possible. And it was really a challenging time period and also an exciting time period for me personally, being able to talk to legislators and to really educate them about the importance we play in this city, the importance we play in this state. Um, so for me, I was very involved in organizing workers in speaking with legislators and going to Albany as often as possible uh, to meet with the legislators and also bringing the information back to the workers on the park bench to let them know the importance of us getting together and the importance of us organizing uh, to have a bigger voice and to be heard and to be seen as real workers and not as the invisible workforce that we have always been seen as, but to put a face to the work of domestic work. Um, because so many times we work in isolation and nobody sees us. Nobody sees us pushing the stroller or cleaning the house or taking care of the elderly. We're oftentimes seen as the invisible workforce. But once we started organizing and legislating um, for the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, it became clear that it wasn't just 10 of us or 20 of us. But here in New York, it's estimated that there are over 200,000 of us. And that's a lot of people not to see. That's a lot of voices not to hear. Yeah. And just looking back on the grassroots campaign that went into the legislation all the way through the passage of the legislation, which was obviously the, the first um, bill like that anywhere in the country, how have things changed since then? I mean, have, has it been long enough now that 
the legislation has started to have an impact in uh, your life or in the life of the uh, workers that you helped to mobilize? Um, I can say personally the legislation has helped me um, in being able to negotiate with employers after the passage of the Bill of Rights um, for provisions in the right. For example, a 40-hour work week. I am one of the workers who used to work 50, 60 hours a week and over time would only start after 50 hours or after 60 hours. But now with the passage of the Bill of Rights, I can say to employers now I'll only work a 40-hour work week and I do expect to be paid over time at time and a half after 40 hours. So that for me has been like a significant change in the work that I do as a domestic worker. And I know for many domestic workers, um, it has impacted their work as well, but I'd be very honest in saying for a lot of them who don't know their rights or don't know how to assert their rights within the workplace, it is still a challenging space. And this is four years after the passage of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, and workers are still afraid. They're still working in the shadows. They still don't know about the Bill of Rights. And I feel like this is why we, too, here in New York are having this um, Domestic Worker Convention over this weekend so that we can educate a larger population of domestic workers at one time about their rights within the workplace. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the biggest challenge with dealing with this law is that, right, you have to find all 200,000 domestic workers and their employers and uh, help com them communicate to their employers that they maybe can't do some of the things they've been uh, doing for a while. I'm definitely interested in hearing more about how that has played out, how you know, has there been resistance from some employers to changing because of the law? Have you had challenges more in getting people to agree to go, to go by the law or just making sure that people know about the law? I still think that it's challenging, both for employers and employees. Um, I know we're organizing with Jay Fridge, um, which is the parent organization, um, to for them to educate employers. Right. Um, we in the domestic worker movement, we're organizing the workers so that the workers can be educated because what we've learned or what we know is that many workers are afraid right. in this industry in which we work because a lot of us work under fear and fear for various reasons. And the domestic worker movement is in place to educate workers to lessen that fear for workers to know what their rights are. And it's still to this day that constant reassuring workers that it's okay for them to know what their rights are. And workers have to know the best time to engage in conversations with employers about their rights. And I believe the best time is on an interview. Uh, because mm -hmm. once you're in a job, it's kind of hard to have or engage in these conversations without there being a level of retaliation. Yeah. Um, even yeah. though we know the law does protect against retaliation from right. uh, provisions in the law. Um, so it's still, I, I think it's still a very hard terrain to mm -hmm. undo the culture which has been learned or has been passed down for so many years. Four years is still new. 
Right. Uh, we're talking about centuries of this work being isolated and not seen as real work. So four years is really just scraping the surface and how yeah. we began to educate workers so that they can feel a sense of ownership, a sense of pride, and less so a sense of fear in this industry that's so important. Yeah, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about what kinds of resources or or support that um, the domestic worker organizations provide for domestic workers who are having problems, you know, with being mistreated or with their, their bosses not abiding by the law. So uh, from my experience within this work, uh, many sister organizations across the city do have legal help available to the membership and to the workers um, where these workers can access oftentimes free legal services where they can decide which route they want to take in dealing with situations that they've been in that weren't the best situations. So I feel like that legal help as provided to many of us as domestic workers in the industry and in the movement, it's a huge help to many of the workers knowing that they don't have to take on these abusive situations and just sit back and go like, you know what, this is just another bad employer, but that there is actually a space for a legal recourse, um, especially in the light of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. So it definitely lends leverage to this industry and for workers, I believe, to feel a little bit more comfortable to know that there's a law that's on their side and there is a way that they can access legal help um, with these sister organizations across the city. When you talk about giving workers more leverage, um, I think maybe uh, because of the way we're we're sort of uh, used to thinking about domestic work, it, it seems like conceptually pretty far from what we think of as a conventional workplace. Um, it's a really intimate setting, you know, a lot of layers of interpersonal relationships and kind of a different um, ethic that goes into the work maybe than a traditional kind of like boss-employee relationship. So when there is a dispute, how, how does that how does that work with the personal dynamics between you know a, a domestic worker and and their employer who might have you know they might have been working for 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 years and years and might be um, you know really connected with that household um, you know what kind of intervention makes sense in that case or maybe you have some stories about you know incidents when there's been retaliation or there's been a dispute and and there has had to be some kind of third party intervention what what form is that taken. Yeah, it's it's hard, again, because oftentimes there's really the disconnect between employers and employees where employers see their home as our workplace. So that starts there. So the personal dynamics really do play out. Oftentimes employers say to us, we are a part of the family. And with that, it takes away a lot of the employer-employee relationship and it puts it more in a family dynamic which is very challenging to many workers. I can say that from my own experience in talking to workers. Um, oftentimes we don't feel like we are a part of the family because we're not treated as a part of the family or what we understand or perceive as family dynamics to be paid for. So going back to that to say, this is a working agreement that we have with employers, but it's also very challenging when situations come up and workers um, raise issues or employers themselves raise issues, there's a little bit of tension that oftentimes exists. 
And workers wanted to, uh, let's say, go after the employers for abusive situations that they've been in. Oftentimes, it's done after they're done with a job. Um, just to protect themselves on the job, it's done after the job. There are very few cases that I know of where workers have gone or have had a third person intervene while they were on the job and was successful in in seeking leverage on that platform because the employers understood that they didn't know because they didn't understand um, the full scope of the law. They didn't understand their role as employers, and they were understanding in cases of that. Um, but those are very limited cases. Like I said, there may be two cases that I know of that has been resolved where the relationship is still solid to this day. Uh, but oftentimes, really the way it's handled is that the situations are taken up after the employment comes to an end. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like, you know, that would probably be the least tense <laughs> dynamic to have. And unfortunately, it only comes kind of after the fact. But yeah. um, in terms of, you know, more proactive uh, kind of preventive measures, I know that in the debate leading up to the passage of the bill, uh, one of the provisions that some were pushing for that was ultimately, I think it, it was actually, didn't make it into the final version, was um, some kind of provision for some form of collective bargaining and something that goes, you know, beyond the contract, but actually looks at the workforce more collectively, which I guess, you know, obviously would have provided more leverage, but also would have sort of changed the workplace dynamic. Is that something you're still interested in exploring further, maybe when this bill is revisited a few years down the line or as you continue with your movement building? Yeah, I don't believe that the idea right now for collective bargaining is far-fetched. I still believe it's it's probably a provision that we would love to explore within this industry to see how this looks like um, in terms of domestic workers being able to collectively bargain. This industry is so unique in that there's only one employee to two employers, and it's probably one of the only professions within this country that's shaped that way. So it's hard for us going in on an initial interview to kind of negotiate, and we don't have anybody to negotiate with us or for us. So um, I would like to see the idea or the vision of collective bargaining happening sometime in the near future. Um, so sort of we've been asking very specific questions, but on a, on a broader level, where are things with the movement in New York now that the Bill of Rights has passed? What's the sort of focus for the organizing that you're doing these days? I feel like um, here in New York, it's really around educating workers um, across the city. Um, I feel like this convention is going to be a jump start to bigger organizing of larger contingents of workers across the metropolitan area, which is amazing because we need something to keep our eyes on the prize and to remember that the bill is in place, but it needs to be enforced. Having it and not having it enforced, there are two whole different things. So I believe that's a part of it. And um, I believe also it could be conversations about the 2015 campaign. Uh, for provisions that were excluded from the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. So these are things that I believe are on the horizon or I think that are on the horizon. And with Sunday's convention, it's definitely going to be a jump start into beginning to engage in these kind of conversations. And and what kinds of things, um, you know, do you hope to put, what are some specific uh, proposals that you hope to advance in, in the coming, uh, you know, weeks or months? Or? Some of 
of the proposals I would say that we could begin to advance is definitely going back um, to legislators to talk about um, severance. I know severance is a big thing for domestic workers who are oftentimes terminated without anything. So I would see that could be something that probably goes into the bill. Maybe um, health care could possibly be still on the table. So I'm a little sketchy on this and I don't want to speak too much on it because I'm still a little sketchy on it. And um, it's it's work in progress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Looking at the national picture, um, as you know, you know the National Domestic Workers Alliance um, has been working through caring across generations to look at um, the relationship between uh, domestic work and home health care and the aging population. Um, has that has organizing around those issues been different in some ways than organizing for domestic workers, you know, say on the local level? And and um, you know, what are some of the additional policy challenges that you see on that front, where you're dealing with a population that uh, ties into the healthcare system and all these other uh, institutions? Um, I don't know how much I can speak to this, but I'll speak as much as I do know. It's huge. I feel like in the domestic worker movement, we are constantly challenging spaces that haven't been afforded to us before. Um, I feel here in New York with the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, we were tapping into a space that wasn't there for domestic workers. And with the national, we're doing that nationwide. And I feel with the Karen Across Generations that that's exactly what we're doing, really thinking about it in a different way outside of the agencies that do provide um home health care, but for the elderly caregivers and what that looks like for these families who want to have care for their relatives or parents within the home. And how does that shape the way that we as domestic workers are providing this care in a space that that's different or that hasn't been seen before as a real issue or real work? So I feel like we're opening doors that have not really been completely cracked open um, in really paying attention to the older generation as they begin to age gracefully and then to the people who are really providing the care to allow them to live in the comfort of their own homes and live with dignity in their own personal spaces. So I'm excited about the conversations as we continue to have them nationwide as to how workers two can feel that they're contributing to this aging population in a way that's allowing these families or these parents to feel cared for in a holistic way because it's happening within their homes. Yeah. Yeah, we saw this week, I guess, the announcement that the home care workers are are joining the fight for 15 and calling for a $15 an hour minimum wage for home care, too. Do you think this is a a good... uh, a good connection to make to be part of this broader fight for higher for $15 an hour? Definitely. I feel like with better wages, um, workers will perform better. Workers are under a lot of stress as the cost of living, especially here in New York as a bigger city in this country. Workers are in a, a crunch financially um, to live and seven fifty an hour, eight fifty an hour really isn't how much does it afford you? Um, and many of these workers are making, barely making above minimum wage, and it's hard to sustain. So $15 an hour, definitely, I feel like it's, um, it's the bandwagon that we as domestic workers would definitely be a part of. 
Uh, on a national level, one of the things that both Caring Across Generations and um, the domestic workers movement more broadly has been really keyed into is the movement around immigration reform. And it seems like that is one of these really broad-based, um, like kind of cross-cutting social issues that um, is not, you know, just uh, a labor issue, but is definitely related to labor, specifically, you know, gender and labor and, and family, right? Um, so can you talk about navigating the intersection of those issues, uh, you know, how immigration, um, immigration reform ties into this broader movement for justice for domestic workers, many of whom obviously are immigrants. Yeah, there's the sector of domestic workers. Um, many of us are immigrants, um, and this population is a population where many of them are undocumented as well. And it's how do we really look at this as a bigger issue? Uh, we believe that when workers are documented, workers are already wanting to do the right thing. They're already wanting to pay into taxes because many of them, documented or not, are doing that. Many of them just want the security of being able to work, which they're already doing within this country, and um, helping to shape the economy. And so there are over 2.5 million domestic workers here in the U.S., and um, having uh, many of whom may be undocumented, having these workers documented, um, having them be a part of the culture and of the life that they're already living in America would definitely lend to workers feeling less afraid, feeling not valued, but feeling more a sense of pride and dignity for the home, the home that they've made America and for the home that they have with their families here. So definitely um, the immigration piece is a huge piece for us within this industry. And we're hoping that within the near future that there's some resolution around immigration reform. Sure. I had one final question just about the conference. Um, I know that this is this seems like a pretty unique um, kind of setting for people to be discussing these issues. Um, can you just tell us, you know, what you hope to accomplish at the conference and what you hope to come away with? Yeah, I think um, for me coming out of the conference would be um, to really have a deeper look at the researchers who are studying this industry um, to really hear what their reports are uh, from their perspective and also to share with workers in the space on Sunday what that looks like from the perspective of the researchers and to engage in conversations of what that looks like for us workers on the ground and how it is that we see ourselves shaping this industry, making the domestic worker industry an industry that is valued, that's uplifted, that's respected, because it's a very important industry. And we want to shape this in a way that this is a profession that others want to come into, not others wanting to run away from, because we uh, that perform this work know the importance and know the value of the work of domestic workers. We know how hard it is to be that of a domestic worker and how important we are to the economy in America and in the world. So it's really for us to come away with an added sense of pride, an added sense of value, and an added sense of dignity for this important work which, which we do that makes all other work possible. And that was Allison Julian. She is a nanny and domestic worker based in New York, and she was speaking to us um, on the eve of the Domestic Workers Conference here at Barnard College in New York City. 
You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for our favorite portion of the show. Arg! I wish I'd written that. So my pick for this week uh, was Warwick Smith's Do We Dare to Question Economic Growth in The Guardian. I like this piece because we often discuss environmentalism uh, in terms of the cause of environmentalism being pitted against economic interests and portraying it as an anathema for growth and development. And that's um, a tough pill to swallow in many ways rhetorically for a lot of poor countries and poor communities here in the U.S., um, where there's a fear of environmental regulation as potentially uh, curbing economic growth or leading to economic stagnation. And for uh, communities that are living on the edge, you know, that that's not a sacrifice that they can afford to make. So as we discussed last month in our panel on climate change, you know, this is really a false choice. And uh, I liked uh, what Smith argued here, which was that, um, you know, there is a real issue in terms of pitting economic growth against environmentalism, but the way we're going about doing it doesn't mean that we can't uh, resolve some of our pressing environmental issues in a socially just and uh, socially responsive way that leads to a more equitable distribution of wealth. So he says, you know, on the environmental side, the rhetoric often, you know, ebbs into this certain form of high-minded austerity that uh, smacks of, frankly, people coming from a place of privilege, you know, telling everyone else that, you know, while we've got ours, you know, we're wealthy and comfortable, but the rest of you poor people in the world need to, you know, cut back because you're just a burden on the environment. So, um, you know, what he's arguing here is he's sort of towing the line between optimism and doomsaying because he says uh, we have to challenge capitalism and we have to challenge the notion that simply stopping consumption is a rational solution for all the world's people at the same time. And he writes, um, economists like the Nobel Prize winning Paul Krugman will counter this line of thought by pointing out that theoretically we can have endless economic growth because of continuous efficiency increases. So if you believe human creativity is endless, then you can argue that economic growth can be endless. However, in this case, like in so many, reality clashes violently with economic theory. We are showing no signs of decoupling economic growth from physical resource use, and unless that decoupling starts now and happens in a hurry, continued economic growth will push the planet beyond its capacity to sustain us on several fronts. And you might be surprised to hear, he writes, that there's really good news in all this. None of the stuff we're doing that's destroying the biosphere is making us happy. By contrast, changing to a more sustainable way of living will also bring us greater happiness and general well-being. And what he's talking about there is to make sure that the people at the bottom are lifted up at the same time that we ensure that the crazy, outsized, wasteful um, consumption and the hoarding of uh, both you know, the country's wealth and the Earth's natural resources at the very top echelons of society is is ended and the only way we can do that is by attacking capitalism at the root and as we noted in our September panel, green capitalism won't work, and this is exactly why. We need a framework of climate justice that takes into account economic disparities as well as ecological imbalance. And we also need to ensure that we're limiting growth in a way that allows people at the bottom to enjoy the kind of quality of life that used to be the exclusive domain of over-consumers. So while we chew on that, we should also be reminded that climate change really is a pressing issue, and we can't put our faith in some sort of technocratic solution. What we really need is to rethink the way we treat each other as well as the way we treat the planet. 
Small goals. Yes. We aim, we aim small here at Flavor. The piece that I wish I'd written this week is titled When the Guy Making Your Sandwich Has a Non-Compete Clause. Um, it's by Neil Irwin at the New York Times' The Upshot blog. And there's been a trend lately in the, new, in the news media that's been going on for maybe a couple of years. Um, some new horror story comes out about the working conditions in low-wage places of employment like Walmart, Starbucks, McDonald's, or in this latest case, Jimmy John's Sandwich Shop. People pass around the story and exclaim about it in horror on social media. Then the story fades, and the next time there's a shocking story, many reporters act just as, well, shocked that low-wage workers face grueling conditions, no respect, and yes, very low wages. This piece, thankfully, doesn't do that. Um, instead, Neil Irwin connects the latest bout of shocked shockedness over the news that Jimmy John's requires a non-compete clause for its sandwich makers to this ongoing situation of low-wage workers and the ongoing weak economy and lowered labor union density. He points out rightly that this non-compete clause is just another way in which big employers try to control every aspect of a low-wage worker's life while offering almost nothing in return. Other low-wage employers than Jimmy John's also have non-competes, he notes, and in a previous story at the time, Stephen Greenhouse, one of the last full-time labor reporters in the country, uh, reported on at least two of those workers who were actively denied the chance to take another job. This kind of violates the most basic tenet of capitalist free employment, the one that is so often shouted at me on the internet whenever I report on low-wage worker organizing. If you don't like your job, you're supposedly free to get another. Well, not so fast. Collectively, Irwin notes, these endless regulations forced upon low-wage workers in a still-crappy-despite-all-the-cheery-reports economy tilt the playing field toward the owners of businesses and away from the workers who staff them. I do have to pick one bone with the piece. It does make the somewhat common mistake of acting as though the economy is a force of nature rather than a thing created by humans that can be changed and that might perhaps get better if people who worked at Jimmy John's, among other places, had higher wages in the first place. But it does the important work of providing context for these shocking, shocking stories, connecting this issue to the one Michelle discussed earlier of Amazon's security checks in the Supreme Court and this issue of unfair, unreliable scheduling, reminding us that low-wage workers across many, many employers face the same conditions and it's time we did something about it. And that brings us to the end of episode 63. As always, you can send us your thoughts, suggestions, complaints, comments, stories of your non-compete clause at your place of employment. Tweeted us from the security line at at your nearest Amazon warehouse. Exactly. Tweeted us at hashtag belabored. Email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.